Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and today's guest back with us again on the show is Jason Baxter, who's here to talk with us about one of the greatest works of literature ever created, Dante's Divine Comedy. Jason is Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College. He's published a number of books, including the one we're talking about today, A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy, which is published by Baker Academic in the States, a division of Baker Books. Jason, hi, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brent. So glad to be back. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you after C.S. Lewis and the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis. Now, we better ask this question, who was Dante? Dante was a Florentine poet from a busted aristocratic family in the late 13th century. He was born within a year of the painter Giotto, uh, about three or four decades after the death of St. Francis and Thomas Aquinas, which is to say he's late medieval. He's about 100 years before what we commonly think of the Renaissance, but he has and thus has really a, a foot in each of those worlds. At one time, you feel him strangely scholastic. You feel like you could be reading some of Bonaventure's densest sections of the journey of the mind into God or from the Summa Theologica. At other times, you think you're reading a proto-humanist who is coming up with original commentaries on classical Mm -hmm. literature. And I think uh, we might be getting ahead of ourselves, but it's perhaps in some sense Dante's ability to straddle these two worlds, which makes his poem so so dynamic, so complicated, sort of pulling in all these directions has such an internal energy to it. How did politics affect Dante during his lifetime? Yes, quite a bit. Um, Both, I think, just controlling the very categories of how he perceived the world as well as his personal life. So he's living in the, in, the, in the sort of the long-term consequences of the investiture crisis, which sort of plays out over multiple centuries. But perhaps your readers don't know this, but human beings tend to be divisive and schismatic. And uh, we almost always group ourselves into two clean and neat categories. Because obviously for any question of importance, there are only two answers uh, either side. And similarly, Dante... Uh, our distant ancestors were not all that different than we are, um, except the the party names had changed. And it was Guelphs and Ghibellines, or in Dante's little Florence, it had become white Guelphs and black Guelphs, which imitated the distinctions between Ghibellines and Guelphs. But essentially, there was a papal party, and there was an imperial party. And at the time, the Holy Roman Emperor was of German descent. And so it created these strange international conflicts in which the, the Italian peninsula had been rather carefully regulated through the, you know, through the barbarian invasions of the Dark Ages by the papacy, which had grown accustomed to certain sort of legislative rights and duties and responsibilities. But the imperial party wanted to come back into Italy and so had gone down south to Sicily and then up through Naples and was beginning to come. And so there's all types of machinations. But essentially, these sort of big, huge international political tectonic plates reflected themselves in the little local politics. In the U.S., for example, if you want to run for the office of, you know, uh, of dog catcher, of stray dogs, you have to declare yourself either a Democrat or a Republican dog catcher, right? Analogously, in Dante's day, these sort of huge international politics reflect themselves on the micro level 
And Dante gets, after his initial period of being a love lyric in his 20s, he becomes respectable and goes into public service in his 30s and gets caught up in one of these, uh, these political coups and is exiled in 1302 while he's on the road as an ambassador to Rome, spends a couple of years trying to ally himself to other exiles in order to force their way back into Florence, and then eventually quits all of this political activity, as he says, and becomes a party unto himself. And seemingly shortly around that time, it's when he goes back to the poetry of his youth, although in a very different style now, and begins to write the comedy. Yeah, why do some people think that uh, the Divine Comedy is the greatest work of the Western imagination? Yeah, I'm just I'm just quickly filing through uh, my mind for other candidates. I mean, maybe Homer, the Iliad, or the Odyssey, or I don't know, maybe something like Plato's Republic or the Phaedrus of the Symposium, or maybe Sophocles or Shakespeare. Of all of the or or Brothers Karamazov or something like that. I think of all of those candidates, I might I might stick with Dante. And I think what it is, is that you have something which is going to be characteristic of the novel eventually. That is psychological interiority, as well as we mentioned Lewis already. Oh, C.S. Lewis-like psychological sensitivity to our own tendencies to self-deception. That sort of subtlety toward the gradations of the soul in which I invent rational stories to cloak some, some other desires, right? Dante has something like this. It's especially on display in the Inferno and is also on display in Purgatorio. But he has a kind of psychological astuteness to, to human interiorities, which won't really be perfectly developed until the 19th century novel. Think sort of, you know, Flaubert and on. But in the meantime, he still has a medieval imagination, which is interested in the, in the symbolic, the cosmological, the, you could say the encyclopedic, that is sort of exhaustively wants to characterize the world, uh, the different types of virtues, the different types of vices, and sees um, both the world as well as our moral development in this polyphonic way. That is the successful integrations of multiple melodic lines and this, in some sense, is what human flourishing means. Um, the medievals have this extraordinary thing, which they say that the microcosm reflects the macrocosm, by which they mean that in an extraordinary and mysterious way, individual human souls are created almost like sort of you know, tuning forks to have natural resonance with the world outside of them. And thus Dante, by writing a basically a, a sci-fi space journey, which goes from the very depths of hell to the very heights of heaven, or as I like to say it um, with respect to Augustine, who considers the world from caterpillars to supernovas, in a way sort of creates this, this cosmological, if I can use an anachronism, astrophysics kind of big picture story in order to talk about the small picture story of my psychology. You know, we, we, we hear about sort of, you know, post-Freudian, we live in the, in the age of deep psychology, right? Well, we also live in the age of deep time and deep space and black holes and, and uh, neutrinos and neutron stars, all these deep things. I think in a weird way, Dante anticipates this extraordinary depth of cosmos, but unlike us, it hasn't been fragmented, separated. He doesn't live in the culture of what C.P. Snow called, I think, in the 50s, 
the two cultures in which humanities and sciences have, have basically permanently divorced. Dante still lives, you know, maybe, maybe you could say Nicholas of Cusa 150 years later, but Dante still lives in the last possible age to do physics, quote unquote, and to do theology, quote unquote, simultaneously. That I think is why someone might say that Dante has a special privilege of being number one, Amazon bestseller of all time. <laughs> what actually happens in the Divine Comedy? Well, first of all, I think we should just clear something out of the way so that none, none of your listeners are disappointed. The comedy, despite its name, is not very funny. It's, it's not a funny, co- no, it's not a funny no, it's, book it's, at all. Yeah, it's not funny. So I, I just stop listening now and we'll just save everyone a lot of time. This is, this is not the comedy you're looking for. A man, come to find out it's both the poet and a pilgrim simultaneously. As if Aeneas could write his own story or if Achilles could write in the first person. It's, it's, that is an extraordinary literary invention right there. It might be the first. Anyway, in the first person narrative, the, the pilgrim and the poet are lost in a horrendously frightening nightmare. And all of a sudden, a man wakes up in a cold sweat in the middle of a wood, and he can't remember how he got there. How's that for cinema? It sounds like film noir. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, I am, I'm, I'm doing a translation right now in which I want to capture that. Um, I <laughs> Don't tell anyone. I never thought of it like that before, but it don't is. Don't tell anyone. But in order to get myself jazzed up to do my translation, I watch um, Darren Aronofsky's Pie. And I close my eyes and then translate with that to try to create that kind of edgy black and white, you know, filmed on your iPhone kind of feel. Mm. Um, I think that's what the, what at least the Inferno feels like. It's fragmented. It's terrifying. It's, it's pulse accelerating. It's pupil dilating reading. And in the middle of this dark wood, this, uh, this man starts running. He's not exactly sure why he feels haunted in almost a sort of Paul King's North beast kind of way. And he climbs a hill in order to find this patch of light and is backed down by three terrifying creatures whose existence he did not even know of. He bumps into a random person, maybe a ghost, maybe a shade, begs for help and then discovers it's his personal hero, Virgil himself, the Roman poet who had written, who had written in a time where things were sane and understandable before the world went nuts. So Dante thinks maybe like how we sometimes tend to think of the 1950s, right? Before the world just went crazy. Um, And Virgil is able to take Dante on this terrifying journey through hell beyond places that Virgil himself was able to write about. He has to go into deep hell because this is a Christian journey. He has to bust into the gates of this and he goes all the way down to the very depths of hell and all the disgusting and depressing and shocking horrors that he finds. But in some sense, the journey reflects, the outward journey reflects the journey of his own interior heart. And when Dante gets to the center of the earth, he's allowed to climb out through a crevice to the Antipodes, basically where we would think of Antarctica, where there was a mountain of seven stories, as Thomas Merton put it, seven terraces, it's purgatory. And each of these different terraces purges one of the seven deadly sins, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. And Dante goes around each of these circles getting higher and higher each time and has to engage in a in a brief duration, a penitential activity, as well as meditate on virtues or on stories that he thought he had knew. 
but he had never read with the heart. He had only known them through the brain. His brain knowledge had never become heart knowledge. But when he successfully does that and has a, and has uh, cleanses himself from his addictions to these petty earthly things, he has an encounter with his old beloved Beatrice, who forces him to go through a painful rite of deep conversion and baptism. Think Orwell and the unveiling scene at the end of Till We Have Faces. And then once he's 100% clean, all the way down to every last ounce of blood in the heart and, uh, and nerve in his body, he is able to do a, a medieval sci-fi space journey. And he starts floating up into heaven and he goes through the different heavens, which for Dante are all associated with different perfected heavenly virtues. So he goes from the moon to Mercury and then Venus and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. And he doesn't know about the other planets. And then he goes into the starry celestial sphere and then into this weird thing called the Prima Mobile, which is the drive shaft of the universe. And then he has a vision of the Trinity itself, which leaves him speechless, ironically for a poet who wrote a really long wordy book and thus ends his, the wordiest poem that had ever been written in wordlessness. I want to come on and talk about the, uh, the Paradiso, the last part in more detail, because I I fell in love with it when I read your book. I just thought it, this is just wow. so beautiful. It's such an incredible vision of heaven. I'd never thought of it like that before. So this is really a poem that's structured according to medieval views of the cosmos. It is. Yeah, it is. I said it already, both in terms of the correspondence of what they would call microcosm and macrocosm and what we might call psychology and physics, um, but also in terms of, in terms of medieval astrology. Uh, I mean, this bothers people, I think. Um, but I think if you, if you just think that every time that we talk about a tendency because of a sociological background or in terms of our genetic makeup or our evolutionary biology or something like that, and then just sort of attribute that type of influence to the planets and stars, which is how the medievals put it, then you get it within that system. You still have freedom, even, even though they think that, well, they just thought it was the most obvious thing in the world. The sun causes plants to grow and the, and the earth to warm. The moon, they knew, affects the tide. So clearly, all of the other planets must exert similar, although more difficult to detect, influences. And these influences both have physical effects, but also psychological slash spiritual effects. And so as Dante is going through this type of world, it's kind of neat. And this, I think, actually just sort of carries over perfectly to our own world. He meets souls who have those natural influences, which could have become vicious. But in Paradiso, he meets souls who took these natural influences and developed them to a type of supernatural level. For example, um, just assume that your spouse, hypothetically speaking, has a melancholic and saturnine disposition. Assume that one has a spouse such as that. Um, you certainly know the, if you're married to such a person, you certainly know the negative, <laughs> the, the, the negative proclivities of such a, such a temperament, such a character, right? Sometimes grumpy, sometimes irascible, sometimes perfectionistic, right? Nothing is good enough. But Dante shows us that those, those very types of inclinations can have their uh, supernatural celestial perfection. And so when he meets the souls on Saturn, they're the contemplatives. These are the people who took that um, irritability 
and turned it into a kind of, can we say this, a supernatural restlessness, an irritability with shallowness, but then turned it from a minor to a major key such that they craved depth in all of their being and became the contemplatives and thus sort of perfected their Saturnine or melancholic dispositions. Analogously to how the jovial disposition or the Jupiterian disposition, right? The, you know, the charismatic leader, right? Who might bulldoze people, but has a vision and wants to get it done and sometimes doesn't listen to it. The Jupiterian jovial souls also find, it demonstrate a kind of perfection of this inclination when Dante meets them in, in Jupiter. Because all of a sudden up there, they've done this magical thing, which is really hard for a charismatic, energetic disposition to even imagine. They've taken their power and invested it in creating the conditions of flourishing for others and so on and so forth. And Dante gets to go through these heavens and, and see this amazing thing that what if you both retained your individuality, your unique personality and disposition, and it achieved a supernatural perfection simultaneously. And that's kind of the glory of Dante's Paradiso. Well, one of the aspects, as I say, we've, I've already mentioned uh, my favorite metaphor for talking about Dante's Paradiso, it's polyphony. And Bryn, I think when we were talking about Lewis, I also mentioned Thomas Tallis's Spin and Allium, the 40-part motet, mm. right? And which begins with a couple of, uh, of melodic lines harmoniously blended. But in the fullness of the piece, when it, in its full theme, there are 40 separate individual voices singing different melodic lines. I imagine Dante's Paradiso as a one million part motet, or maybe as Dante had it, a 144,000 <laughs> part motet um, of such extraordinary complexity in which we have finally figured out how to use our individuality and how to harmoniously integrate ourselves into a community simultaneously. And if you get a glimpse of that in Paradiso, it's a glorious thing. In fact, Dante thought it was so glorious that it would, it would save the world. It would free us of our petty, sick divisiveness, and we would actually repent and be good. Alas, it's a good book, but it's not that good. <laughs> and all of this is inspired by a lady, Beatrice or Beatrice. Is she a femme fatale, continuing the film noir imagery? It's really, it's really tempting to continue the, continue the, uh, the analogy, but I'm afraid not. No, okay. Dante writes a, a semi-autobiographical short work called uh, The New Life, The Vita Nuova, in which he tried to take uh, some of his youthful love poems of the 20s and, and baptize them by kind of foisting upon them a narrative. I don't know, imagine, uh, imagine a director who uh, in his you know, 50s, describes his teenage years and 20s as all leading up to his first great achievement when he was 31. It's, it's, you know, it's as fictional as it is autobiographical. But nevertheless, it's fascinating because Dante seems to have recognized a theological or spiritual benefit in writing love poetry. So you have to keep in mind, this is weird stuff. And Lewis in 1936 in writing his allegory of love who knew how weird this stuff was. In fact, he devoted his first scholarly book to trying to convince an audience that it still had some type of value. Like he would later do as, as Michael Ward showed for the planets. Lewis began by talking about how this weird courtly love stuff had some sort of enduring, enduring theological, spiritual, psychological value, but it's really weird stuff. But nevertheless, in this whole sort of genre of courtly love poetry, you write 
these what we would call platonic love poems about your beloved to whom you were not married. And oftentimes she was married to someone else. And Dante does this sort of thing in his 20s for, for Beatrice, um, to whom he was never married. But nevertheless, in reflecting on this, as he continues on in his life, Dante realized that the experience of trying to speak forth love, trying to reach down into the soul and talk about what it feels like to fall in love and not just say it in sort of canned cliches, right? But to actually say something that maybe this will make sense, perform your love in someone else. That is to say it so well that you could sort of take that magical dare I say it, mystical experience of love and bottle it and hold it like a crystal which retained light. If that's what I think Dante thought he was doing in his youth. That turns out, Dante thinks, to be the extraordinary prototype for writing a proper theological poem. Because in a similar way to how you have to sort of reach down in there and and, uh, into the heart and find words deep enough, non-cliched enough, fresh, sharp, cold, burning words, which make people listen as if for the first time, you have to do the same thing for theological realities. You can't just repeat the old opinions that everyone's heard in Sunday school, but you have to say them in the sort of way in which everyone perks up and feels they've never heard these things before. And that way, in a weird way, Dante's early career as a love poet prepared the way for his late career as a theological poet which was prompted by his failed middle career as a politician. Coming back to the Paradiso, because I want to spend the last few minutes of the interview on that, as though we couldn't talk about it for hours, I found it quite, quite magnificent. But in what sense are Dante's souls in heaven, or Paradiso as he, in Italian, falling deeper in love? I think that's another way of picking up on the theme we were just talking about, of how his early career as a love poet prepared him for his late career as a theological poet. That is, it enabled him not only to seek after these inarticulate groanings of the heart, the ineffable realities which are elusive of our ability to capture them in words, but also the very falling in love experience. So in the courtly love tradition, part of what you were hoping to do when you wrote a love poem was to write so beautifully that you could, quote unquote, wound the lady just as she had wounded you. And... In some sense, you, you could speak into reality. You could, per, by performing your love, you could initiate or activate some sort of potential love and her unfreeze her, and then she would return the love. Now, if that ever happened and she all of a sudden returned your love, then it would increase your love all the more because now, the, now that you knew that your love was being reciprocated and thus potentially this sort of dynamic of my love eliciting your love, which in turn fortifies and increases my love, which then it could create this sort of reciprocal reverberate, you know, reverberation effect. When you get to Paradiso, to your surprise as a, as a good Christian reader, you discover that love lyric and the whole phenomenon of falling in love gets to go to heaven. There are some souls, surprise, surprise, in the heaven of Venus, souls who have perfected the art of love. There are souls who basically squeal with delight as Dante arrives. Who's this? Here's someone who will come to increase our loves. And Dante says that when he felt all this excitement, like this kind of huge celestial surprise party, 
he himself felt his, uh, his sort of chest expand with generosity and love and said, replied to them, wanting to make them happy. But when in turn they saw that he was growing in love, they actually grew in love. And so you get the impression that Paradiso is dynamic, that heaven is a dynamic environment in which in good faith and in admiration, like, like those sort of moments, I, I sometimes you know, jokingly say that every now and then it doesn't happen very often, you know, once you've exited the warmth of your youth, youth, but every now and then you meet people that you feel like you've been friends with for 40 years, though you've known them for 10 minutes. I think heaven feels something like that, of this sort of dynamic reality in which your admiration of me inspires admiration of you. But then when you feel that reciprocated, it just continues this sort of dynamic environment. So heaven is this constantly falling in love place. It's sort of vertiginous, vertiginously, dizzily exciting in terms of the warmth and sort of spiritual radiation of communion, of commu- not just community, but communion. And this in turn becomes, you could say, the reading environment for the love of God. And in that sense, Dante has this brilliant suggestion of what good other humans are for my salvation. I think this is something that's very important because we tend to think of heaven as a place in which we, it'll just be me and God. And I hope some other people will make it there for their sake, but I don't really know what good they are for me. But Dante basically has this image, something he already anticipates in Purgatorio, of a light reflected off a mirror. Now, the mirror is, is, is stained through original sin. And our goal in the pursuit of sanctity and holiness is cleansing this mirror to the extent that we can. And this is what Dante's Purgatorio is for. So it's that, what, that sort of primal light, which is always reflecting on us, we reflect more and more and more intensely that light. And thus, in some sense, reflect better love, which is hitting us. But then Dante adds this, other, this extraordinary thing. Imagine that mirror is just so ever so slightly off axis. So some of the rays are reflected uh, horizontally, not just straight back to the vertical source. Well, in the heavenly community, there are all these other mirrors, also slightly off axis. So a tiny beam from me might just go horizontally and hit you and thus illuminate your uh, mirror slash lamp, which in turn could go off to another. But because God's love is constantly pouring into the community, this whole community of reflection and refraction is growing in luminescence simultaneously forever. Thus, there's a type of dynamic reality because God's, God's love and depth is inexhaustible. You need a, multi, a multiplicity of human beings to reflect and refract as much of this light as possible. So the more brethren we have in Paradiso, the more we'll even be able to experience the um, ineffable delights of the beatific vision, according to Dante. Final question, Jason. What is the heavenly rose? I think it's something I just described in terms of the mirrors, except now in Dante's extraordinary cinematic, I call it kaleidoscopic imagination, he has to keep shifting metaphors. Why? You remember the early days and your readers remember the, or your listeners remember the early days in which they had just fallen in love, like the very first moment. And you go home to your dormitory room or to your parents or to your house and you start describing it. Imagine if you in, endeavored to describe that with sufficiency, what it was like. And they would say, well, how do you feel? And you say, I feel cold. I say, oh, like, like on a winter day. And you say, no, 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 but I also feel hot. 
like when you have a fever. No, no, but I also feel it's, it's sickness, but it's good. And you would, in other words, you would kaleidoscopically use metaphors, both as a way of drawing near, but in some sense, the ineffable reality keeps receding it even as you describe it. And so the, the poet needs to use this, uh, this panoply, this myriad of metaphors. Well, Dante does this in Paradiso, such that his mirror image in Purgatorio becomes a field of flowers, which is being nourished by burning bees that come out of a river of fire. But then in the sun, all these individual f- flowers become petals on a big gigantic rose, the mystical rose of eternity. In other words, what we might call the communion of saints. But in his phantasmagorical cinematic, again, imagination, those images keep shifting. You couldn't do this. You know, Dante's the first one to do it before CGI. And he beats Silicon Valley by about 700 years. Yes. Oh, thank you, Jason. That was, uh, that was a fabulous discussion. Jason and uh, Jason Baxter, Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College, and his book, A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy, is published by Baker Academic in the States, a division of Baker Books. Jason, you're working on a translation, you said. How, how long is that going to take you? How I'm working on um, I hope that Inferno will be out in 2023 and okay. Purgatorio in 2024, and it just seems too too perfect numerically to be possible, but part of these are in 2025. Well, let's hope you do it. And we should look out for that. Thank you so much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Jason, thank you so much. Thanks. This has been great. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter you'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>